We began a few weeks ago a new sermon series on revival, and most of you are on board with that, and you understand that that's what we're praying for, that's what we're talking about, that's what we're yearning for as a congregation, not just this congregation, but the church at large, right? Because we believe that the church of Jesus Christ is not in a good position globally. We believe that God needs to send us a revival. We want it. We yearn for it. We long for it. And we're crying out for it. You know, it's interesting, several different sources that I've talked to are on this theme. Pastors, um, I was just learned that uh, a leading magazine, Christian magazine, is, has, has this as a theme. Uh, so revival is something that only the Lord can give us. It's the outpouring of his spirit. And so we long for it, we cry out for it. And you know, what, what are we trying to do? It's, it, it goes along with that quote, right? We're trying to right the ship, in other words, in order to return the church to what we call normal spiritual life. And we, we saw that in the Jonathan Edwards quote, right? He said, revival is not a special season of extraordinary religious excitement, right? Rather, it is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit which restores the people of God to normal spiritual life after a period of corporate declension. Everybody goes through highs and lows. Everybody goes in the valley for a while and on the mountain for a while, and, and, and we have those ups and downs in our Christianity, in our walk with God. Where are you in that walk? And do you long for an empowerment that only the Spirit of God can bring you? The essence of revival is to, is to wake up and live. That's what we're longing for. And it's crucial for the church to make an impact. You know, I've asked that question over and over. Why is there so little power in here? You know, we, any church could ask that, frankly. I mean, that's just not our church in particular. But why are there so few conversions? Not just this church, but church-wide. Why so few seeing a victory over sin in their lives? Do you struggle with the same thing year after year after year after year? As I told you, I gave you part one last week of revival, of the purpose of revival, and I said I would bring you part two. I'm not. <laughs> um, I sort of felt like I needed to go this way. And we're going to get part two. Don't worry, we'll get back to part two. But um, did I switch it up on you? I don't know, bait and switch. Um, I, I'm, I'm led this week to go back, in, in a sense, um, to talk about the thing that must precede revival. Something has to happen before revival comes. It's, it's universal, it's a principle, it has to happen, or else revival will not take place. And so... Do you know what it is? I hope, you know, I was reading Jonathan Edwards, and in it he describes something that, that I want you to think about. He, he writes about a person's conversion and then what happens beyond that conversion. So I'm just going to read it to you. Listen, he, it's, it's sort of 
maybe archaic language, so kind of just listen carefully. He says, the arguments are the same that they have heard hundreds of times, but the force of the arguments and their conviction by them is altogether new. In other words, when you suddenly hear the gospel, you've heard it before, but now you, now you hear it. Okay? That's what he's talking about. He says the conviction, their conviction by them is altogether new. And he says they come with a new and before unexperienced power. So the gospel hits you with a power that you hadn't experienced. Before they heard it was so, and they allowed it to be so, but now they see it to be so. Indeed, things now look exceedingly plain to them, and they wonder they did not see them before. They are so greatly taken with their new discovery, and things appear so plain and so rational to them that they are often at first ready to think they can convince others, and they are apt to engage in talk with everyone they meet with. Almost to this end, that when they are disappointed, are ready to wonder, that their reasoning seemed to make no more impression. In other words, they get so excited and the logic, the understanding, the rationale of the gospel seems so clear that they begin to say, I want to go and tell everybody. I want to tell people. And they begin to tell people. And when they tell people and, they, and the person says, well, that's nice. Good for you. you know, then they're disappointed. He says, he says he's wondering, you, you, what you wonder in that moment, are you hearing my, what I'm saying? Are you, I mean, are you getting this? I had this conversation with someone the other day, a couple of weeks back, and they were like, do you get it? You know, it's like, this is the best thing ever. I mean, I didn't see this before, but now I see it. Are you seeing it? And uh, they, they were getting it. And so, are you hearing what I'm saying? Do you, have you ever gone to others and, and you say, and you say that, and you just, it seems to fall on dead, deaf ears. You know, and if you're ever wondering, if you're ever wondering why others are not responding to the gospel, maybe, maybe we're not experiencing revival. And so, if you've never thought, gee, you know, that, that um, person, I'd like to see them saved, and, and but... Uh, you know, I got life to do. I have busyness. I have things that are piling up on my desk. I have all these other things. You're not experiencing revival. Because when, when you're experiencing revival, guess what? It, it wakes you up in the middle of the night. <laughs> it, it causes you to pray for people throughout the day. You, you see them in your mind's eye. You, you see their face. You, and you think of them. You may be even listening to a song and it reminds you of them and you stop and you pray. I mean, those are signs that God is at work illuminating your soul, bringing revival to you. And this can happen individually as well as corporately. But I want to read this morning's text. It's in Exodus chapter 33 because I think it shows us the precondition to see this revival happen in our hearts, in the hearts of people throughout this land 
It shows us how to repent. It'll show us how God brought a whole nation to worship him. You know, you got to wonder how it is that God would teach an entire nation a principle of spiritual life. We're watching it happen right here in Exodus 33. So this is what precedes revival. Let's read from verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, and I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Here's the point. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing, At the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his own tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses returned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. We see some precursors in all of this. Some things that necessarily must happen to bring us to revival. And one is, well, we see what happens here is it causes us, it causes them to repent. To repent. I don't know if you caught that. It also causes them to to rouse them into worship. So so to repent and to rouse to worship. So I want to... Break this down a little bit for you. Most of my time will be spent on the first one, but I want to encourage you at the end, especially. So it causes repentance. You know, in verse four is so critical. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. In other words, they heard something that caused mourning, and no one put on any fancy things. <laughs> And why is this significant? Because um, in the ancient Near East, when, when you mourned, you tend 
tended to dress the part. You had to look the part on the outward. So when they repented in sackcloth and ashes, they would literally wear sackcloth. It was the, it was the garb of the poor person. And they would put dust on ashes, dust on themselves. I mean, they would just look unkept because that was to repent in sackcloth and ashes. That's what it meant. You literally looked the part like you're poor and needy. And so these folks took to heart the appearance and they didn't put on anything that would adorn themselves. It, it, they didn't put on their fancy clothes, in other words. They didn't put anything colorful. You know, today, we do the same thing. If we're going to a, a gala event, right, don't we put on something bright and cheery and happy? And They didn't do any of that. And so it was a sign of mourning. They didn't adorn themselves. But what they heard, what they heard is the most important thing because they heard a disastrous word. I don't, I want to... Have you ever heard a disastrous word? You know what it feels like to hear a disastrous word? I don't, I don't want to bring it back to some bad place, but um, I think of 9-11, you know, when that took place. That was shocking, right? That was a, that was a disastrous word in a lot of ways, and, and it, it changed the paradigm for, for many people. Like what life was about and what security was about, and I remember I remember that people flooded into the churches because they were seeking answers and security once again. And so, to hear a disastrous word isn't always disastrous, okay? And so I want to show you what it what that did for the people of God, for Israel, you know. Rehearsing what happened, you remember this is this is all toward revival. How do we bring revival? And so we, we want to look at what it takes to bring spiritual enlightenment. We, we want to be awakened. We want to be filled and have the outpouring of the Spirit on us. I don't know how else to drive this home other than to say, you know, you know, we, we had a wonderful group here last night. We prayed. And, we, and we, we repented. We did the very thing that I'm talking about this morning. We repented. We looked at Psalm 51. We looked at David's cry. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a red, steadfast spirit in me. You know, cleanse me with hyssop. Make me new, Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And we, we prayed those things. We cried out for those things. And um, that's what it... That's the beginnings of revival. So you remember the story where we are in Exodus 33. We're, we're in a place where Moses has just led the people out of Israel. God's hand, of course, led them into the wilderness. And here they are in the wilderness. God sends for Moses and says, come up on the mount with me. I want to give you the Ten Commandments. So he's up there getting the Ten Commandments the people of Israel down in the valley with Aaron in charge. Well, they become impatient, and they go to Aaron and say, Aaron, you know that guy Moses? What's happened to him? He's gone. He's been gone a long time, and he could be dead. We don't know what he's all about, nor do we know this, this God that um, he represents 
So we want you to make us a God. So Aaron, under peer pressure, says, okay, give me all your gold. They take all their gold, they throw it in the fire, and, and according to Aaron, out pops a golden calf, okay? Um, we know he had to fashion it to some degree. But here they are out there, uh, and they're worshiping this thing, right? They, they're, they're thinking, God doesn't care about us. God, this God that Moses is up with, he doesn't, he persuaded us to leave Egypt, but he, he, he doesn't care about us. So we want to make a God of our own liking. You know, and so they do this, and, and they begin worshiping it. And, and they had a party, and they, they went crazy with all kinds of immoralities and, and worshiping and dancing and sinning and, and rebelling. And, and so that's the background. God becomes furious with them in that moment because they've already rebelled against him. And he says to Moses... I'm going to consume them. Um, you can guess what that might mean. And, and Moses pleads to the Lord. He relents. Okay, doesn't consume them. And so that's kind of where we are. We're at that place now, at the beginning of chapter 33, where he hasn't consumed the people of God. He, God has said, okay, I'll, I'll deal with them another way. He sent the plague on them, and they had... There were some problems there, I'm sure. It um, doesn't tell us a lot about that. But, but Moses is then instructed to go on. But here's the, here's the point. Verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you along the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. Couldn't be worse news. Couldn't be worse news because why? Because God was not pleased with his people. He was not pleased. That's the significance of this. He says, you, you, but you've made a promise, God, but no. I'll send you. You're going to go to the land of milk and honey. You're going to go there, but I'm not going to take you. Moses will take you. I'll send an angel ahead. He'll lead you, but I'm not coming up. Now, I don't know if that makes any impact on you, but there's no substitute for the presence of God. There's no, okay, an angel's going to get us there. Um, Okay, God, you know, he's a little ticked off. I understand. He'll get over it. We'll, we'll take the angel for now. You know, I mean, he seems a little angry. I don't want to end up du like dust or consumed. So let's go, with the, let's go with this angel. You know what the people did? They said no. They said no. I mean, Moses said no. They said, how will we be recognized as being different on the earth if we don't have your presence? I mean, do you ever say, God, 
I'll forsake everything if I get your presence. I want you. I want your presence in my life. I don't, I don't want an angel, frankly. I don't, wanna, I don't even want your blessings without you. Have, have you thought that way? Have you ever said that to the Lord? Have you ever gone to him and pleaded with him and said, Lord, don't send me. Don't make me go. I don't want to move from here. I don't want to go anywhere until I go with you, Lord. I don't know if that, if that resonates with anyone. But they didn't want the promised land without the Lord. Imagine that. You know, on a... On a much lesser earthly scale, you know, when, we, when Susan and I had a couple of boys, once we tried to go on vacation without them, and the whole time we were away, we wanted them there. And the whole time we were away, we were like, you know, we couldn't wait to get away alone, you know, but then while we were away alone, we were like, oh boy, wouldn't they like this? You know, wouldn't, like, wouldn't they like that? And we would have, you know, we would have really enjoyed ourselves more with them. And, and I know that's a, that's a really sad example, of, but, but this is what was happening. We want, we want the Lord's presence. And so when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. No one put on his ornaments. This is a, it's a, it's a precondition for revival. You know, we have to feel the weight of our sin. You know, they, they felt the weight of their sin in that moment. Because why didn't God go up with them? Because they had sinned. They had rebelled. They had turned against him. And they recognized that and they said, you know what? <laughs> We're sorry. And we're sorry in such a way that we're showing the, 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 our sorry, our guard, godly sorrow by, by actually not adorning ourselves. So there's a motivation. Every good spiritual movement has always done that. Think back with the example of Martin Luther. You know, he realized that there was sin in the church, that they were selling indulgences, that there were many abuses within the church. And it drove him to seek a righteousness that could be only gained by faith. And he began, he, you know, he didn't want to start a revolution, but he did because what he had was so profound. He sought the Lord. And so when they realized the greatness of their sin, their drinking and playing and doing what they were doing, it was turned into sorrow. And so a little bit later in verse 6, it says, therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So there was a genuineness to their repentance. There was actually something uh, that changed about the way they did life because of their repentance. You know, a lot of people say they're sorry. A lot of people regret some things that they did. But is there actually an actual change that takes place, an outward expression of that repentance? And so, you know, when I'm dealing, uh, I counsel a lot of people using uh, drugs and 
One of the things I say, show the fruit of repentance. One of those things is you delete or get rid of all your drug dealer phone numbers. Right? I mean, that's, that's a simple fruit of repentance, right? I mean, it seems like a no-brainer to you and I, but, but they, you know, someone in that culture doesn't think that you know, that really should happen until you say, show me the money, you know, show me repentance. Get rid of those numbers. And, and so in here, we need to show. And so here, um, they showed outward expression. I'm trying to think of how to shorten this whole thing. But why so long a period of time between a revival? You know, why shouldn't we live the normal spiritual life that, Martin, that uh, Jonathan Edwards said? Why, why is the church seemingly so ineffective in winning souls? Um, how do we show true repentance? You know, if the church repented like it ought to and, and lived the life of repentance and humility like it ought to in, in front of others. I think that the world would take notice. And, you know, there is, a, there is a, an example I want to bring up, and I only bring it up because it illustrates the difference between true repentance and not, um, well, just a worldly sorrow. And so I will be appropriate but it's a news story that's been in the news, and, and uh, it, it shows us what's happening. You know, you know the, all these sc- scandals being unveiled in, the, in, the, in our culture, um, and I'm sure you've read about them, you've heard about them, you know, just prominent people uh, falling, you know, because they have uh, committed some tremendous um, scandal, uh, two of which are Harvey and Matt. Right? I'll just use first names. Uh, Matt, for instance, was a top uh, host on TV and NBC, right? He had a prominent position. But his, his, his issues were, were, I mean, he, he lied, for instance. I read an article recently about him lying about previous relationships that he had. And when his top bosses asked him, you know, do we have anything to worry about with you? No. Not really, you know. Um, and a close friend of his said he goes between sadness and acceptance of his fate to disbelieve how it all happened so quickly and how the situation was so out of his control. So here's a guy making 20 plus million a year and, and he is kind of in disbelief because of the atrocities that he did. He's in disbelief that it happened so quickly, and he fell so f- rapidly. And so it was only six weeks after the Harvey scandal that this Matt scandal started brewing. And uh, NBC president and the chairman, who were close friends, came to him and said, is there anything we should know about or be worried about? And you know what his response was? I'm racking my brains, but I can't think of any. <laughs> and so... 
That was before things broke. When things started breaking and the news started coming out and, and he, he was faced with the facts, he, he began to backpedal. And uh, his demeanor changed. And it said that the NBC folks were, were furious with him, obviously. And, uh, and so he came out with a statement in which he expressed his sorrow and regret for the pain that I've caused others by words and actions. And then he said, some of what is being said about me is untrue or mischaracterized, but there is enough truth in these stories to make me feel embarrassed and ashamed. Imagine that. He's embarrassed and ashamed. Is that repentance? Not even close. Okay? And so he didn't fight the allegations only because they were so... There were so many and so much evidence against him. He didn't want all that mess out there. And thank the Lord, because the media would have had a heyday with it all. But, you know, Matt, it's one of his friends, close friends, said, Matt is still feeling a lot of shame, but he's angry because he certainly wasn't the only person in TV doing this, but he has taken the fall. Imagine that. He's the fall guy. Oh, sorry, you had to be the fall guy. And then he said, he told a friend, the world is a dark place. Do you see the difference between that, okay? Uh, someone who regrets maybe some things because, because of the consequences versus someone who really is repentant, right? And so I, I don't raise that. I don't want to drag someone's mess out before you. But I, I, I say that just because it's a, such a, a contrast between what biblical repentance is and what the world says you ought to do when you're faced with your sin. When we're faced with our sin, we strip ourselves of our ornaments. We go before God, we worship him, we cry out to him, we pray to him, we ask for forgiveness. We ask the proper response in the Holy Spirit is, Lord, I am so sorry. And you begin to show the fruit of repentance in your life. That's what happens. Um, do you know this repentance is a question I would ask. You know, God meets with those who are consecrated to him, repentant toward him. And these are things, you know, there are things... I'm guessing there's things that, you, that, that ought to be removed from your life, stripped from your life, um, because there just are things that hinder your intimacy with the Lord. I mean, I was talking with someone recently, and I just had to say, you know, pornography is an obvious one that should be stripped from your life. Um, but, you know, too much gaming, Right? Too much TV. You know, even the news and the media, you know, it distracts, it distorts, it dampens your ability to have intimacy with God. It just clouds us up and clogs us up. You know, let me encourage you this morning with something. King David, we know his story, right? We know his fall with Bathsheba. We know his problems. He was not a perfect man. He messed up royally. But he wrote this in Psalm 32. He said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Well, it was covered by the Lord, not covered and hidden from the news media. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit, 
right? We're, there's no deceit. There's no hiding. There's no stuff in the closet, so to speak. Then he says, for, for when I am kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. In other words, he was guilty. And it bothered him to his bones. He felt so guilty. And so he kept silent about it. And he, he shouldn't have. He should repent. And he knew that. And he said, verse 4, for the day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah, that just means think about that. Think about that, right? You, the Lord's hand was heavy on him. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah, <laughs> think about that, right? He forgave. And so, verse 6, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. Think about that. And so, may we offer godly prayer and we go to him and we repent and we have David tells us what happens God forgives our iniquity simple it's the only place it can be found and so a guy like Harvey a guy like Matt they need to go to God the very same place you and I would go there's no difference let me tell you folks there's not a lot of difference okay don't ever think that you are much different than those two. I'm sorry, but we, you know, you say, well, I would never do that. Well, there's plenty of stuff that go on in here. And Jesus says, you think about murder? You've done it. You think about adultery? You've done it. You, you lie, you cheat, you do this, you do that. It's all there. It's all there. And so none of us can point the finger. None of us are that righteous. And so, as we come, we say, Lord, at the cross, there's a level playing field, right? It's all flat in front of that cross. We all are on our knees and on our faces. But you know what? The people got this, they got this disastrous word. It caused them to repent. And the fruit of that was they didn't adorn themselves and then it caused them to worship. And here's why I say this. You know, because Jesus turns our mourning into dancing, right? And so in verse 7, he says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called the tent of meaning. We, we read this already. So what, what Moses would do, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the tabernacle that we've learned from pictures this w- and this tent would have normally been in the center, anyway, of the camp. Moses moved it to the outside. And he would go there. And he would meet with God. And what's interesting is that whenever he would go, the pillar would come to the tent. And this pillar of cloud was the representation of the presence of God meeting with, with Moses. The people would stand outside their tents and they would worship while that was happening. 
You know, when I think about it, if you lived over in one of these houses and you saw a cloud descend upon this building, and what would you do? Would you stand outside your door and look? Would you, would you pray? Would you just say, you know, Lord, I want to be a part of that. I want to be involved with that, but I'm not sure. I mean, what would you say? And I'm going to just conclude here because I'm not, I'm not asking you to read your Bible more. I'm not asking you to pray more. I'm not asking you uh, if you are living a godly life, you know, or whether you're active in the life of the church. What I'm asking you is, do you have the presence of God in your life? Do you know God? And do you have his presence in your life? Is he, is he with you? Or are you going through life? Because see, they were given the option to go with the angel. And they said, no, God, we want you. How many people live their life with something much less than the presence of God? How many people live far away from God? Well, in part, it helps. They feel safer, right? They feel safer because God is scary to them. That's why Christ came and said, I'm God in the flesh. You know, you can feel touch. You can see who I am. He became, he became very friendly at that point. Um, so do you have this personal relationship? And, and the end of repentance is, the ultimate aim of repentance is that you would have this relationship with God. And so I hope your prayer is, you know, Lord, give me you and not anything substitute. Um, and I want to end with, uh, I just want to end with this, this personal testimony. Um, and I know some of you might say, this, this is a bragamony. It's not a bragamony. It's more of a testimony. But it's, it's, it's the illustration that came to mind. Um, you know, when I was a college student, it's about me. Uh, I'm sorry, it's about me. Um, when I was a college student, uh, I was in a college church, and I was, I was a deacon in the church, and, and I loved the church. And I loved serving the church. And I, I lived in the house next to the church. And so I was there a lot, almost all the time. And I mean, every Sunday, hundreds of worshipers would come through the church. And we would have several worship services. And we had this amazing band. We had this amazing worship band, mostly students from the University of Miami Music School. And, and they, we, we rocked the place. I mean, we were just amazing. It was great. And the preaching was great, usually at least an hour-long sermon. I'm really light on you guys. And it was wonderful. <laughs> but I remember when everybody left. It was my job to kind of shut the place down, and I would shut it down. All the lights, everything was off. And I would sit. I'd sit in a pew. We had pews. And I would just 
talk to the Lord. Now I just, I just sense, just, I'll take the scraps, Lord. Whatever is left over from your presence, I want it. I want to take it with me. I want to live in it. I want to soak it up. I want to absorb it. I don't want anything less than you. I know why. You know, it says, Moses should speak to the Lord face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Dun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. He wouldn't depart. Why wouldn't he depart? Everybody's, none, most of the commentators, they don't understand why he didn't want to depart. He didn't want to go. Why? Because the presence of the Lord. Folks, when you get that, you don't want to go. Who cares about lunch? Right? You want the Lord. And so I just want to encourage you with that, with that longing. My prayer is that that would be your longing, that you would say, Lord, I want this. I want this repentance. I want this worship. I want this longing. I want this desire in my life so that you will be glorified in me. Glorify yourself, Lord. Jesus prayed that prayer. If he can do it, we can do it. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we, as your people, long for your presence. We long for an outpouring of your spirit. We long for revival. We long to be made awakened. That we would live the life that you've called us to live. We don't want to play games, Lord. We don't, want to play, we don't want to play religion. We don't want to play church. We don't want to play happy. We want the joy of the Lord, the peace of God that surpasses all things. We want your presence. Lord, come. Come, Holy Spirit, Maranatha. In Jesus' name, amen.